this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Today's topic will cover the issue of myocardial protection. My name is Bill Regali and I'm a first-year cardiothoracic fellow at the University of California, Los Angeles, and today I'm joined by Dr. Richard Scheman, who is the Robert and Kelly Day Chair in Cardiac Surgery at UCLA. His clinical practice has encompassed all areas of adult cardiac surgery, including the first heart transplantation in New England, and his academic career has been marked by multiple leadership positions nationally, including tenure as the Chair of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. Dr. Scheman, thank you for taking time to discuss this important topic. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So let's start with our first case-based scenario. You referred a 65-year-old male who has severe aortic stenosis and multivessel coronary artery disease. He's referred for surgical AVR and cabbage. His effective orifice area is 0.8 centimeters squared with a mean gradient of 48 millimeters of mercury. Selective coronary angiogram reveals three-vessel disease. He is low risk by an STS calculator, indicating that at the present time he is not a candidate for TAVR. Dr. Scheman, how should the trainee think to approach myocardial protection in this situation? Specifically, what should our cannulation and venting strategy be and temperature management of the patient? And then finally, covering our basics of cardioplegia agent itself, the temperature of cardioplegia, the quantity and frequency of its dosing. Well, thank you. Um, obviously, this is a patient with aortic stenosis. I assume that patient also has left ventricular hypertrophy, which is something one must always think about. And so far, you haven't told me anything about his left ventricular function. Uh, so that will be another component. This obviously, from a thought process, you know, people with low EFs in the setting of uh, aortic stenosis and multivessel coronary disease, myocardial protection is extremely important. So from the um, Cannulation point of view, obviously, this is the type of patient that you want to be prepared to give both anagrade and retrograde cardioplegia, and also have the ability in your setup to give cardioplegia down each graft, because you cannot assume reliable distribution cardioplegia to areas of uh, significant obstruction uh, when you have coronary artery disease. The other important thing is is that many patients with aortic stenosis may have some degree of aortic insufficiency. It may be relatively minor compared to their other cardiac lesions that you'll be dealing with in the repair uh, of the heart. However, aortic insufficiency really limits the ability to give anagrade cardioplegia. Um, we always monitor during the anagrade component of cardioplegia delivery the echo, looking for left ventricular distension. However, it's also important to pay attention to how the heart looks and whether or not the pulmonary artery appears to be full or the RV, and also um, what the PA pressure is. And the reason for that is, is that very often in severely hypertrophied hearts, they don't have the ability to distend easily because of the lack of compliance of the hypertrophy ventricle. And you may see elevations in those pressures uh, long before you actually see distension. So as far as overall strategy, um, 
usually for an aortic valve coronary bypass, uh, cannulation of the uh, right atrium alone, double cable cannulation is not necessary. Um, and obviously, arterial return from the pump going to the uh, ascending aorta with the appropriate cannula. The order of the operation also has to fit your cardioplegia strategy because you always have to have an idea of the choreography of the various components of the operation. So in general, um, if this is a 65-year-old man, uh, you have to choose your particular conduit and obviously deliver your cardioplegia down a saphenous vein graft um, can be done easily. But delivery of cardioplegia down a radiograft or a mammary artery is not possible. And in those distributions, retrograde cardioplegia will be what you're most interested in order to get delivery to that area of myocardium that um, needs to be protected. I would prefer uh, starting out with a anti-grade dose of cardioplegia with the monitoring for distension. In a case like this, um, I would probably use standard cold blood hypotassium cardioplegia for my arresting dose, then use low-dose potassium blood cardioplegia for the subsequent doses. Usually, my initial dose of cardioplegia is one liter. Um, and if it is ideal, I would give about half integrate and half retrograde. If there is a issue of uh, duration of cardioplegia, the endpoint you're looking for is to get a quick arrest of the heart. And the rest of the time is to keep the heart arrested and get good distribution of cardioplegia to all the areas. Um, and after the initial dose, I would start with the coronary bypassing first, uh, doing the saphenous vein grafts, the radial grafts if being used, and eventually the mammary grafts. I would give cardioplegia to other grafts that I can and redose after each anastomosis. That usually would be somewhere around 10 minutes. Um, I never go more than 20 minutes with standard cold blood cardioplegia without redosing. So during the aortic valve component of the operation, which would be the last component, um, I would give retrograde cardioplegia, usually at natural break points, so it meets with the choreography of the operation efficiently, so that before opening the aorta, after taking out the valve and debridement, um, redosing, then putting in all the sutures and lowering the valve into position. Um, I would probably give another dose at that time. Uh, all subsequent doses I give are all retrograde. I don't bother to give direct osteal uh, perfusion or down the grafts, even though some people have elaborate techniques of having what's often called a turkey foot or a, or a line coming off the cardioplegia cannula that allows you to perfuse down vein grafts uh, that can be connected through. Um, a variety of uh, extensions. And then after closing the aorta, that's when I will finally uh, measure the length of my saphenous vein grafts or radial grafts and do the proximal anastomosis of the aorta as the very last component. When I use standard blood cardioplegia, I always like to give a uh, hot shot, and that's warm cardioplegia. Um, 
usually integrate down the aorta and now the grafts. Now you have a confident valve uh, for several minutes before I release the cross clamp. This concept of uh, a warm blood uh, modified reperfusate before actually uh, releasing the cross clamp is important. Uh, if I'm dealing with a patient with left ventricular dysfunction, uh, there's very good evidence that to add aspartate and glutamate, uh, which are Krebs cycle uh, primary amino acids, uh, you can enhance the re-restoration of ATP in the myocardial sites um, during the modified reperfusion before releasing the cross clamp. Thank you. And you uh, pointed uh, just uh, to the fact that uh, oftentimes in severe aortic stenosis, this coexists with some degree of uh, aortic insufficiency. Uh, if you uh, give your initial dose anagrade and you see that the root fails to distend uh, without an arrest, what should the trainee think to do uh, immediately next uh, with management of a quick uh, arrest if the, if the root dose is not going down the uh, coronary ostia? Well, if you start out with an integrated dose and you see any continued beating in the heart, you're not getting efficient distribution of the cardioplegia solution to the myocardium, um, you should already have your retrograde component set up. So all you have to do is close off the, uh, uh, the tubing or the stopcock and redirect for retrograde cardioplegia. Usually, I try to have a coronary sinus pressure being measured and like it to be somewhere around 35 to 40 uh, millimeters of mercury. Uh, and I vent the ascending aorta during the retrograde cardioplegia delivery, um, and that will not have any back pressure in the, uh, in the uh, coronary arteries. And that's a very important component to get good distribution. There are data and actually research studies that I did in the 1980s uh, that showed that the retrograde distribution of cardioplegia complements antegrade even when you do not have any obstructive coronary artery disease. So that there's many people who believe that you should probably always give antegrade and retrograde. Even though I will admit that I uh, very often are doing minimally invasive uh, types of operations, and integrate cardioplegia is the only easy and reliable way to give the cardioplegia. Uh, obviously, these patients do not have any significant aortic insufficiency, and I've been able to achieve excellent results. And just to divert, you know, if I was just doing a single vessel bypass and an aortic valve, um, in those cases, very often I would go for the convenience of Del Nido solution, uh, which has also been shown to be an excellent uh, solution for protecting the myocardium. It has a somewhat different mechanism of action. Um, most of us do not give a reperfusate uh, before releasing the cross clamp when using Del Nido. And in addition, you know, the duration of the initial dose, the ability to keep the heart arrested, and the lack of a real need to redose up to potentially 90 minutes uh, really saves a lot of time uh, and reduces the complexity of the overall operation. 
but the key is is to keep the heart cold and to uh, efficiently perform the operation and when you are using more complicated techniques of perfusion down the graft, anti-grade, retrograde, and using standard cold blood cardioplegia, the real principles are um, every 20 minute at least redosing uh, because it does have a tendency to wash out and microfibrillation of the heart may return. And the other component is, is to be sure you get good distribution of the cardioplegia, so using the anti-grade and retrograde techniques are complementary. Thank you. And you mentioned briefly the issue of uh, cardioplegia down the vein grafts. Uh, what is your uh, experience and what is your own interpretation of the data and how should the trainee uh, approach the issue of high potassium versus low potassium solution down vein grafts? And is there some degree of intimal injury down the vein grafts with high potassium solution? Well, I don't think that there's actually injury with uh, high potassium solution down the vein grafts. It's usually 30 milliequivalents per liter. Uh, low potassium solutions are usually somewhere around 10. The key is, is to keep the uh, heart and diastolic arrest. Um, most people just give their initial dose high potassium and all subsequent doses are low potassium because you don't want to have during the duration of the operation a real big potassium load given to the patient and have to deal with hyperkalemia and techniques to manage that on pump or through enhancing urine output, et cetera. So it's my general feeling that uh, I'm always giving low-dose potassium, you know, by the time we're actually giving cardioplegia down the grafts because it's well into the operation. The other um, major component is that the reason why we give cardioplegia down the graft is based upon the theory that that's the most direct way to do several things. Number one, provide myocardial protective solution to the regional distribution of that graft, number one. Number two, it allows you to pressurize that graft and look at the anastomosis for any detection of leaks. Number one. Number two, if you hand inject down the graft, it gives you an idea of runoff through the uh, vessel um, into the vascular bed that you have grafted. Also, it allows you to descend the vein graft to make sure that when you measure the length and look at the orientation to prevent any twisting or kinking of the graft, you're able to do so. So that's the time to give the dose down the graft check for leaks and repair them at the time, uh, look at the lie along the surface of the heart, uh, take into account if you're in the circumflex distribution that the pulmonary artery will be more distended when you come up bypass, so you have to allow for that uh, somewhat extra length, and then determine the length of the graft, um, and then move on to the next part of the operation. When coming off of bypass, what should the trainee look for to determine whether there has been a successful myocardial protection, perhaps with some comment on uh, the motion of the ventricular septum. So obviously, from the surgeon's viewpoint, all you're really going to be able to do is physically observe the pulmonary artery. You can always palpate it, but you've got direct pulmonary artery pressures uh, through your Swan-Ganz catheter. And you're able to observe the surface of the right ventricle to look at its uh, 
contraction and whether or not it's underfilled, distended, uh, and whether or not it appears to have good contractility. Uh, those observations over time and those judgments that are made are obviously correlated with the pulmonary artery pressures, the CVP pressure, and the um, and the echo evaluation of the uh, of the both the left and right heart. So as far as the left ventricle and and the intraventricular septum, which is the area that's most at risk uh, during these. Um, episodes with global ischemia and the need for myocardial protection. And we use the term global ischemia in all the operations where we totally arrest the heart and cut off all circulation. Obviously, awareness of coronary collateral flow, which washes out the cardioplegia solution, is important. But when you've done an operation and the patient that you've described, hopefully with better perfusion of the myocardium with the revascularization, um, you would hope that if there is any ventricular dysfunction, that's going to be better. And number two, by relieving the severe afterload that the patient had with the aortic stenosis and a 0.8 valve, um, you hopefully will have preserved function at the end of the case. But Paying a lot of attention to what your eventual cardiac output is um, and other measurements you'll get off the swan gans catheter, in addition to the regional motion uh, that you'll get from your transesophageal echo looking at ventricular function, you'll be able to get a good idea of whether or not you've been successful in myocardial protection. Obviously, patients with left ventricular hypertrophy are particularly vulnerable because. The topical cold that many of us use to augment myocardial protection, the sum in the cardium is the area that's most at risk um, in myocardial protection. And the only way to get uh, protective agents and to cool that, remembering the cardioplegia is four degrees. So the distribution of the cardioplegia to the sub in the cardium is very important. And that's why making sure you do not have distension. Uh, at any point during the case, because if the ventricle is distended, the subendocardium is at risk. And that gets back to one of your earlier questions of venting um, and making sure the heart's decompressed. So people vent differently. Uh, I think for most surgery, uh, they're either going to vent the superior pulmonary vein or vent the ventricle directly through the uh, aortic valve which is a technique that most of us who do a lot of minimally invasive surgery uh, perform because the access to the other vent sites are not possible. But the most important and most vulnerable period is when you release the cross clamp because the stension at that point in time is right after the global ischemic period, and that is the time you want to make sure that you're able to get the heart beating as soon as possible. That's why timing the rewarming of the patient so that the blood that reperfuses the heart is, is close to uh, normal thermic, uh, number one. And number two, that the uh, cardioplegia washes out quickly and the patient can resume a rhythm. And if they are asystolic and appear to be distended, you need to manually decompress the ventricle, um, put on your pacing wires and start pacing the heart. And usually that resolves the problem without having to put extra tubes or hoses in the heart. Because anytime you do that, it just makes the uh, de-airing of the heart more of an issue. 
And obviously, you know, a big part of the myocardial protection strategy when you've done a coronary bypass is to make sure, and you've had an open heart, particularly for a valve replacement, is paying attention to air and air going down the grafts. So de-airing the grafts, having a vent site in the grafts if necessary is extremely important. Now, obviously, you're not going to be venting, you know, a small radial artery um, with a uh, fine needle. So the air component is just another complexity one has to learn how to deal with efficiently. Thank you. Well, we've obviously covered a lot of uh, ground here uh, in these few minutes. In the issue of a reoperative field, so let's say uh, a, a 70 to 80-year-old uh, gentleman is referred to you for a mitral valve replacement for a degenerative disease who has a prior coronary artery bypass grafting with a patent lima to LAD and occluded saphenous vein to the right coronary and a stenotic vein graft to the obtuse marginal. Obviously a topic we can't cover in just a few minutes, but what are your tips and experiences with managing stenotic vein grafts, patent lima to LADs in a reoperative field, perhaps with some commentary on clamping versus cooling, temperature management, and maybe a word about if there's any role for fibrillatory arrest in today's age. If you have stenotic vein grafts, or even old vein grafts that are not necessarily stenotic but have potentially a lot of shaggy atherosclerotic disease, the main concern is not only the myocardial protection, but also the risk of embolization down these grafts. Obviously, with occluded grafts, that's not going to be an issue. And also, if the patient's had a previous coronary bypass, at least in the modern era, uh, it's very likely they have a patent mammary artery, and dealing with the mammary artery and its distribution to the LAD is very important. In that regard, it's very important to know whether or not the LAD territory, one of the most important areas of the heart and a big part of the muscle mass, has got a totally occluded LAD and is totally living off of the mammary artery versus the flow down both the native vessel as well as down the uh, the mammary, because if you occlude flow in the mammary artery, which you will do so that you can distribute and not wash out cardioplegia and LAD distribution, it's really important to know whether or not you're relying upon total retrograde cardioplegia to protect that region of the myocardium. And you may want to err on the side of a longer application and giving cardioplegia retrograde to be sure that you give an adequate time not only to get that area of the heart arrested, but you can also monitor with the uh, echo, but also remember that your distribution of the cold and cooling the myocardium is related to how long and how much volume and how much heat exchange is going on with the cold cardioplegia dose and the frequency of redosing. Now, giving integrate cardioplegia down stenotic vein grafts, I don't particularly worry about because obviously flow's been going down those vein grafts in an integrate fashion all the time. But once you start having open grafts that have atherosclerotic disease and you're giving retrograde cardioplegia, uh, the big issue there is, is when the flow down the vein graft may be going retrograde, will you potentially be carrying emboli into the aorta without your knowledge. So my practice and something that's been learned over the years is that once you start the retrograde component of the cardioplegia, 
And since you're going to be replacing these diseased vein grafts anyway, even though they're not obstructed, if they're old and they've got shaggy atheromina, it's probably a good idea, even though they may be patent, to replace them. And therefore, I would divide the vein graft. And that way, you're given the retrograde, it vents out the anagrade component of the divided vein graft. And very often, you will observe these atherosclerotic uh, material coming out of the vein graft anagrade. Now, the other big issue is, is when to arrest the heart and how much dissection to do before going on bypass, because obviously people like to minimize bypass time. Or going on bypass and then dissecting out the heart before arresting it. If you've got atherosclerotic grafts, just the manual compression of your hand as you try to dissect circumferentially around the heart can be an issue, because you can actually mechanically cause embolization. And therefore, you know, in a reoperative setting like this, um, I would, you know, do my reduced sternotomy, dissect out the aorta, identify my aortic cannulation site. Um, and this is a mitral valve case. Obviously, you're going to do bicable cannulation, but I will only deal with the superior vena cava initially. And I go ahead and cannulate, go and bypass through the single cannula in the superior vena cava with venous assist, and usually you can get good flows. Then carefully dissect out the rest of the right atrium, uh, being careful for a right saphenous vein graft that may be in that area, and uh, identify the inferior vena cava and put in my IVC cannula. And now I've got total decompression of the heart. I would now start to cool, because uh, usually I do not like to see the heart fibrillate beforehand. And I've not practiced, you know, fibratory arrest under these circumstances hardly ever. Also, cooling is a big issue because obviously blood that continues to bathe the right side of the heart and the right side of the septum limits myocardial protection. So making sure you've got very good venous drainage, and I use what's called venous assist or negative pressure on the venous line. In 100% of cases, it allows me to use smaller cannula and still get very, very good decompression. And it helps me not have to deal with any potential air that may come down the right side and cause an air loss. So, again, cross clamp, antegrade, retrograde cardioplegia are the key. Saphenous vein grafts, uh, dividing them at the time of the uh, initiation of retrograde cardioplegia to prevent emboli, minimizing dissection and external compression with one's hands of disease grafts, which can also cause atheroemboli. Well, Dr. Scheman, on behalf of all trainees and the TSRA, thank you for taking time to share your expertise on this fundamentally important topic. Okay. And also, uh, if you go to uh, Cohn's textbook of uh, cardiac surgery, uh, you'll find a recent chapter that I have written. You know, I've had the good fortune of having studied cardioplegia in its earliest days in the 1970s when I was at the NIH and helped develop a lot of the methodology. And also, Dr. Gerald Buckberg, who is the person that put blood cardioplegia on the map and totally changed how cardiac surgeons practice around the world and really was a great supporter of the integrated retrograde technique. 
uh, as a faculty member and spent his career at UCLA, and he's one of the seminal people uh, everyone should know about. And uh, I do want to mention to all the residents, he just passed away uh, several weeks ago. Uh, so we've lost another one of the great giants of cardiac surgery. And since we're talking about cardioplegia today, I thought it would only be appropriate that you be aware and read up upon his life. I'll actually be writing a memorial editorial to the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery, as well as the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. Because I think understanding our history, our heroes, this clinician scientist that really made tremendous contributions and Residents in training today look at cardioplegia like having a, a glass of milk with a meal. It's just part of the way we do things in standard. Many of us remember the days when there wasn't good myocardial protection. We weren't sure what solutions to use, how much to give, ways to give it, and whether or not it actually benefited things. So, you know, you're training in a wonderful golden era of cardiac surgery where myocardial protection is reliable and allows us to do the amazing cardiac repairs or transplants and replacements uh, that are so commonplace. So thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk with you all today, and thank you, Bill, for inviting me to talk on this topic.